Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's get back into Exodus. Exodus chapter 37 is where we'll be this morning. The hope is to cover two chapters, Exodus 37 and 38. And so we'll be doing that together. Uh, as, you're, as you're turning there, uh, just remember kind of the context of where we are. The Lord has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. They are now in the wilderness, have been there for a number of months, and they're on their way to the promised land, but they have not yet seen it. And so they're traveling, and then God has given them plans to build a tabernacle. It'll be the first time that God has a place to dwell among his people. And so we're going to see the construction of that happening here. And if I'm honest with you, I do not want to preach this message this morning. I, um, I tried to figure out so many different things to say besides this. Like I was up late last night just wrestling, and God, give me something else. And like he does, he's like, no, this is it, man. You're going to have to say this. I feel like we've had two kind of heavier weeks, more convicting, uh, toe-stomping kinds of weeks, and I'm just gonna be honest, this might be another one of them. I wanted to give you a break, but God said I couldn't, and so I just want you to know, I wanted to, um, but he's, man, he's worked me over this week, and I, it's just, it's heavy on me, and so um, would you just, uh, just, just, let's just pray, let's ask God to prepare our hearts, prepare my lips. God, we need you, we need your spirit today uh, to teach us. We need your spirit to give us a heart to hear. We need your spirit, God, to give me a mouth to speak truth and not opinion. God, I pray that you would uh, move in a mighty way today through the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And with that ominous beginning, let's start. Uh, So we're gonna pick up here. What's interesting, when you study through the book of Exodus um, and and teaching, I looked up a number of different pastors who've been teaching it. I uh, talked to a couple guys who've taught through Exodus and it all came down to, man, everything's great until you get to chapters 36 through like 40. And then you really gotta decide what you're going to do with it because it gets really repetitive. So if you're paying attention, um, when we're gonna begin here, kind of what we started last week, you've already heard this almost word for word in chapters like 26, 27, and 28. At that point, God is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he's giving him the dimensions for the tabernacle. You remember how exhilarating that was to read through. Um, You get to do it again here. So you have to decide how, how to teach it. And so a lot of guys, what they did was they would kind of pair 26 with 36. They would put it all together. I just didn't feel like that was where God was leading us. And so we land here this morning. And so there's something, when I study the word of God, I just, I just dig and I pour over it and I'm asking the Lord to help me get all the meat off the bone, right? Like I gotta eat the ribs, man. Give me all the meat off the bone. And I felt like I was at the last little bit of it uh, here this morning. And so we're gonna study through this, but I, I'm not gonna read through the entirety of the two chapters. I just wanted to take you on a journey kind of to where the Lord was leading me. So on the screen now will be the scriptures we're gonna reference this morning, and it's a lot, but I want you to see a a narrative that's happening over the scope of this passage. I just want you to be able to see it. And so the Lord 
I, I pray that he's gonna allow us just to see things here that maybe jump off of the page that maybe normally wouldn't to you. I pray that he opens our eyes to it here uh, this morning. So I'm gonna do Exodus 37. I'm gonna jump from verse to verse because I want you to see what's happening here. So Exodus 37, let's go to verse one. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. So we remember God had um, ordained Bezalel and Oholiab to build the tabernacle. They were the foremen of building the tabernacle. A number of men and women came forward with certain skills, a very particular set of skills. And so they've come forward and they're gonna help build the tabernacle. But Bezalel is the foreman. So this entire two chapters is reference of what he is doing. He made the Ark of Acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So what you're reading there is exactly what God gave Bezalel to build. He has built to the exact specifications. He hasn't cut corners. He hasn't skimped on cost. It's exactly what God asked for. Let's jump down to verse 10. He, this is Bezalel, also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Again, to the exact specifications. Bezalel, verse 17, also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. Again, the exact specifications God had given. Verse 25, he made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit. Its breadth was a cubit. It was square. And two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. The exact specifications God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. He also made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumers. So now Bezalel is showing his skill set and now he's working with oil and fragrances, perfuming. But again, the exact specifications God had given to Moses. Let's go to chapter 38. Verse one, he made the altar of burnt offering, the bronze altar in the courtyard of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. Verse eight, he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's fascinating. God made the bronze basin that they would, this priest would wash their hands with after the sacrifices out of mirrors that women brought. I wanted to preach on that. That sounded like a fun thing to preach on about how vain we are. And how, no, I'm just kidding, but that's what, that's what God is using here. Let's go down to verse nine. And he, Bezalel, made the court. So now it's the tent uh, the outside walls, the fence for the south side of the hangings of the court were a fine twine linen, 100 cubits. And he continues to the exact specifications given to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And if you're paying attention, he's moving from the inside of the Holy of Holies all the way out to the courtyard, which again, sounds like a fantastic thing to teach on, but God would not let me. So in my study, here's what blew me away. Most scholars agree that Bezalel was around 13 years old when he was the lead contractor of the tabernacle. I don't know how many 13-year-olds you've been around, but it's a very small list of 13-year-olds I would trust to build anything for me. <laughs> and by small, I mean I don't know one. I don't know one of them. <laughs> 13 years old. Now I know 13 years old back then is different than 13 years old. Now I get it. But 13 years on planet Earth is still 13 years on planet Earth. There's a lot left to learn, a lot left to discern, a lot left. So how does a 13-year-old have this varied skill set, without YouTube, <laughs> has this kind of skill set 
and passion to accomplish something like this and passion to pay attention to the most minute of details. Again, I don't know how many 13-year-olds you've been around, but details are not their strong suit. If you're 13, would you stand if you're 13? Colton, is that just you? Go ahead and stand, Colton. <laughs> Lana, 13? Aiden's 13? Thir stand, stand like you mean it. <laughs> 13 years old, all right? 13, and God has tasked you to build a tabernacle. You can sit down. 13 years old. Based on the dates that we know from Exodus about months and days of the month and that kind of thing, what we've kind of brought it down to is this probably took seven to nine months to build this tabernacle. A 13-year-old, six days a week, sun up to sunset, to precise detail, built this tabernacle. So if you're like me, it leads to this question. Where are all the Bezalels today? Where are the 13-year-olds with that kind of passion and commitment to God? Where are the 13-year-olds who would devote every ounce of their gifts and talents, so aware of it, to constructing a dwelling place for the Lord? Where are they? Where are the 13-year-olds today? So I did some digging into generations, and this is fun for me, so I hope it's fun for you, but I wanna just walk through some stuff as far as generations. Anybody here today born between 1926 and 1945, 26 to 45? Okay, you're called the silent generation, and I know a few of you, and I would not call you the silent generation, but the silent generation. All right, how many of you born from 1946 to 1964? 46 to 64? All right, you're the baby boomer generation. I think we've done enough to stay into your generation the past two weeks. We won't go back into that. All right, uh, Gen X, 1965 to 1980. You guys can stand. You're young enough to stand. So go ahead and stand, Gen X, 1965 to 1980. Yeah, all right. you are my people. <laughs> we of G.I. Joe and Transformer. That's who we are. You can sit down. All right, all right, millennials born 1981 to 96. You can stand up more quickly at this point. 81 to 96, you are the millennial generation. You've gotten all kinds of bad press for the past five years. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just glad you're here and awake. Um, all right, all right, Gen Z, born from 1997 to 2012. Gen Z, would you stand? 90... All right, awesome. All right, go ahead and be seated. After them is what's called the alpha generation. Um, Anyone born from 2013 on, it's called the Alpha Generation. Most of them are upstairs with Miss Allison and Miss Carly uh, and Miss Natalie. They're upstairs. That's the Alpha Generation. All right, so let me give you some statistics. I want to speak particularly about Generation Z because that's where Bezalel would fall if he were here today, right? He would fall in that generation. Here's some statistics. Uh, this is based on a couple of surveys that I read from Barna, the Pew Research Group, and there was another one that I read this past week. 48% of Gen Z identifies as religiously unaffiliated. 48% of Gen Z says they're not affiliated religiously at all. They're what's called the nuns, N-O-N-E. They don't have any religion. Compare that to it's 29% of millennials and 25% of Gen X would say they are religiously unaffiliated. From Gen X to Gen Z, we've almost doubled in religious unaffiliation. Gen Z, 18% would identify as atheistic or agnostic. And only 22% of Gen Z identifies as 
Protestant Christian. So the question, again, is where are they? Now, I am thrilled of how many of you just stood up in this room. I think that's amazing. So maybe I'm preaching to the choir here. But the question we're asking of where are all the Bezalels today, I think it might actually be the wrong question. And I can base that on scripture. So if we were to keep reading in Exodus 38, and we will, let's go to verse 21. And I want you to see there's a rhythm in which scripture has been written. And whenever the rhythm kind of jumps out of rhythm, that's supposed to catch our attention. That's the way Jewish literature is written. There's always rhythm and almost poetry to it. And the moment you feel like there's an offbeat, that should catch your attention, all right? So verse 21 of Exodus 38. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle, the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses. The responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So here's our rhythm. Ithamar, the son of Aaron, a a name, the son of, and then it gives you a father. That's our, that's our rhythm. We've read that throughout Exodus. And we meet people, it's um, this man, the son of his father. It's been the rhythm, all right? But let's continue into verse 22. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. Did you catch it? Did you catch the beat that's off there? For some reason, for Bezalel, we jump from just the father, and now we jump to another generation with the grandfather of her. I want you to remember that, pay attention to that. The rhythm is off here. The rhythm is off when it comes to Bezalel. The tribe of Judah made all the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 23, and with him was Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach. Now we're back in rhythm again. The tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. So, in reading through those three verses, we get the rhythm, but there's a moment when the rhythm skips a beat. There's an extra beat put in there, which I think for us in reading is supposed to catch our attention. Why? Why? Why for Bezalel do we not just stop at the father? Why do we go all the way back to her? And now we've been given a son of Aaron, Ithamar. Why, why is this rhythm thrown off a bit? Well, if, if we've paid attention to the narrative of the story. And I don't know if you like this and maybe you've watched movies and under the main plot of the movie is a subplot. And often that subplot becomes some other new um, realm of the Lord of the Rings. Now it's a whole TV show, right? Whatever the subplot is, that becomes some other um, offspin of that. This is what's happening here. So I want us to pay attention to the beat because it's gonna, it's gonna move us into something else. This idea of her... And this man, we've heard about him, that was on purpose, before uh, in scripture, particularly in the book of Exodus. So let's go back to Exodus 17. It'll be on the screen. You can find it in your Bible or on your device if you want to. Exodus 17 is where we initially come in contact with him. Verse nine, uh, Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. The Israelites are gonna have a battle for the first time against the Amalekites. Tomorrow, Moses says to Joshua, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron and Hur. So now, whenever we read of Hur, Aaron is connected with him. And we just saw that in Exodus 38. Went up to the top of the hill and Hur is Bezalel's grandfather. Most scholars would tell you that Hur is the child of Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister. So her is Moses and Aaron's nephew. 
And we meet him now in conjunction with Aaron. They're going up to the top of the hill with Moses. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they, Aaron and Hur, took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So when we meet Aaron and Hur, we've met them in conjunction and their role is support to Moses. That's their role. Their role is to be with Moses and we read specifically one on one side and one on the other. So that's, that's what we're supposed to picture with this relationship of Aaron and Hur. A number of chapters later, Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai and he's there for the first time for 40 days and 40 nights. And he takes with him a group of elders Let's read this, Exodus 24, verse 13. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. We meet Joshua again. And Moses went up the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here until we return to you. And behold, what do you know? Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So again, we meet Aaron and her, again, in conjunction with one another, in relation with one another, and their role is to support Moses. Moses is going into the presence of God, and he's delegated responsibility down to Aaron and her. Now, while Moses is on top of the mountain, some really shady stuff happens down at the base of the mountain. They begin to build a golden calf. Word makes its way up to God. God tells Moses. Moses comes back down. Let's go to Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron. Now that sounds super polite, doesn't it? I mean, they gathered themselves for an HOA meeting with Aaron, concerned about the neighbor who did not cut his grass. This sounds like we sent out an email and so we've gathered these people. The Hebrew here is that they formed a violent mob is the idea. So they're inciting a mob against Aaron. They've gathered around Aaron and they've said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has come of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. The angry mob uh, crashes in on Aaron and says, get up, make us an idol. We don't know where Moses is. We need a God to worship. And Aaron does. Aaron builds them an idol. He takes the gold from their ears and their earrings and he, he builds them this golden calf. Moses hears about it from God. Moses comes back down and has a conversation with Aaron. Look at verse 21 of Exodus 32. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Now look at Aaron's response. Aaron responds, says, let not the anger of my Lord, that's Moses, my master, burn hot. You know these people, that they are set on evil. Now we read it and it was just excuses after excuse for him. He says, I don't know, I just threw it in the fire and this calf came out, the strangest thing happened. But what we're missing in the midst of this is there's no mention of her. And from this point forward, we will not hear of her again. Because according to the Midrash, which is the rabbi's commentary on the Hebrew Old Testament, 
right? So the rabbis gathered around and, and they would have commentary. They would preach these messages. They would have certain details because they lived here. Or they were just a generation or two removed and they would understand what happened here. According to the Midrash, her was killed by the mob in Exodus 32. According to historic Jewish literature, we don't hear from her again because he was stoned to death by the violent mob in Exodus 32. So what we've got is these two men, Aaron and Hur, with very similar religious, spiritual experiences. They saw the battle of uh, the Israelites and the Amalekites. They were part of holding Moses' arms up so that Israel would win. They've seen Moses go into the mountain. They've heard the voice of God. They have very similar experiences. But Hur was stoned to death because he refused to build an idol. He stood against the angry mob while Aaron gave in to it. Some of the rabbinical literature would say that Aaron gave in to the angry mob because he saw physically within feet her get killed by the angry mob. So you've got these two men. Similar experiences but wildly different expressions of faith when confronted with defending their faith. So we go back to Exodus 38 and you see, well, this, maybe this is why her was mentioned. The thing for Aaron was that Aaron didn't see the golden calf as replacing God. Aaron tried to figure out a way to please both God and man. And he said, I'm gonna do this calf thing for you. And in the morning, we're gonna have a festival to the Lord. So this is gonna be a way that maybe you express your love of God, but so I'm not gonna call it an idol. I would never call it idolatry. He would have never said that he was leading his people into idolatry or idol worship while her refused to give in to the crowd. He refused to build what could have been built. But Aaron gave in and there would be a price that he would have to pay. Now, after the tabernacle was constructed in Leviticus, we read that they're gonna consecrate the tabernacle. And the people who work in the tabernacle, who lead the ministry of the tabernacle are the priests and they've all come from Aaron's line. So all of Aaron's sons would become priests. And we've talked about this a number of months ago, but in, in Leviticus chapter 10, verse one, we read that now Nadab and Abihu, who are the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, it's what would hold a flame, and they put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So the fire should have been brought from the bronze altar. It should have been from the altar of sacrifice. We talked about this. This should have been the fire of repentance that we now lay on the fire of worship, of incense, of prayers making their way up to God. But instead, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, refused to obey the commands of God, refused to follow it to a T, and instead go about doing this their own way. They look for the path of least resistance. What's, how can I do this without it costing anything? Which sounds eerily familiar if you're thinking about it to the heart of Aaron in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. So then verse two, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Aaron's sons find themselves following the path of their father sure, externally looks like they're doing what they should be doing, but in their hearts, they know they're not. They follow the path of Aaron, who at this moment of crisis of faith, instead of refusing to lead the people of Israel back into idolatry, in fact, construct the very idol that they would worship. And then you've got her who refused to build the idol, 
who refuse to allow another generation to walk through idolatry. And two generations removed from him, his grandson at 13 is the chief architect of the tabernacle. Her who refused to build now has a generation of builders. Aaron who gave in to building now has a generation of sons who give in to the easy way out. So these two men had shared experiences but came to different conclusions about who God is, which led to different views of God in the generations to come. So I would argue that the question, where are the Bezalels, is the wrong question. I think our question is, where are all the hers? Where are the fathers and grandfathers standing on behalf of their sons and grandsons? Where are the men standing up, fighting off idols, warring for the affections and hearts of our children? Where are the generations before who instead of building idols are tearing them down? We know the answer. We've become more like Aaron than we are like her. We become overcome by the mob and we build idols rather than tear them down. And we're not just allowing idols in our home, we're constructing them in our home. The idols of consumerism and comfort, the idols of wealth and fame, the idols of distraction to not face hard things, the idol of self. Let's just go all in and talk about the idol of politics. That we worship politicians, we worship parties, we construct idols. And while our kids may know who to vote for and who to not vote for, they don't know God. We've constructed idols of sports. I'm not against sports. I played sports. Our kids play sports. We have a sports ministry here. Sports is a great vehicle to teach lessons and for us as a church to teach the gospel. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. And where our kids' sports schedules dictate the calendar of our worship, we've made it an idol. And we've got some decisions to make. We've got decisions to make about what we're doing in our home. What about the idol of success? What about the idol of social media? And we can get all over Generation Z for social media, but the number one proponent of social media is Generation X. The idol of our phones that keeps us from interacting with our children. The idol of religion that keeps us from having real conversations with our kids about faith and doubt in who God is. So the argument we have as parents and grandparents is, well, I don't, I don't wanna make them go to church. I don't wanna tell them what to believe. You tell them who to root for. Because as for me and my house, we will never yell, go dogs. <laughs> and I know the score I watched. But you'll tell them who to root for. You'll tell them who to vote for. You'll tell them what truck to drive, but you won't tell them to worship the one true God. Later, 
in the promised land. The Israelites have crossed the Jordan. They're in the promised land. And Joshua, who has taken over for Moses because Moses could not lead them into the promised land because of his own sins, has to delegate leadership now. And so um, Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And while they're there, the land has been divided up so that each tribe of Israel gets their own plot of land. And Joshua here in Judges chapter two, verse six, as an account, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel, each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose a new generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. One generation removed from the walls of Jericho come, come tumbling down. One generation removed from overtaking the promised land. One generation removed from the Amalekites and the battle. One generation removed from the sun standing still. One generation removed and they neither knew, they did not know God or the work he had done for Israel. One generation. So where are the Bezalels? I don't know because the hers hadn't told the stories. And the stories of the hers had become less about what God had done and more about what they had accomplished. We conquered, we took over, we wandered, we pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps. But look at verse 11. And the people of Israel, then that new generation did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals, the idols, the gods of the Canaanites. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who have brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, one generation removed and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. How significant is it that we need a church of hers and not a church of Aaron's? This is how significant it is. Because there's a generation crying out. It's a generation who needs to hear the work of God and we're too busy talking about the work of a former president. They know the work of God. They know what God has done for you. Not what you did, not how you've made a successful life, not how you would have got drafted if it wasn't for that bum knee. We don't need those stories. We need the stories about how faithful God has been to redeem and restore your marriage. They need the stories about how faithful God has been in your sin and your depravity to rescue and redeem you. They need the stories about how faithful God has been to provide when you didn't know if you were gonna be able to pay the rent next month. They need those stories. They need the stories of scripture. They need to know this God. So where are all the Bezalels? They're trying to find some herds. That's where the Bezalels are. And they'll find anything, anyone who will give them hope. And I don't want to guilt and shame us. I know parenting is hard enough. Trust me, I know. And I don't want to heap this on. But what I do want to do is I want to lead us into freedom. I want to lead us into who God has called us to be. And don't worry, Gen Z, I got, a, I got something for you coming later. But this is right now for generations above you. But there's hope. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18, 
is speaking to the idea of generational sin and how it continues. And so God is speaking through Ezekiel and he says this in verse five of Ezekiel 18. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, if he does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, that's a different sermon. Verse seven, uh, He does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with the garment, with the garment. If he does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, keep my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. If a man is righteous, he'll live. If he's obedient, if he follows my commands, he will live. Verse 10. But if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends it interest and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. If a good man doesn't devote himself to raising godly children, it comes back on him. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. But look at verse 14. Now, suppose this man. Suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with the garment. What if this man, who was raised by the violent man, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, walks in my statutes? He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. Here's what Ezekiel is saying. We can stop the generational sin. You can stop it. So Gen Z, as much as you want to play the victim and blame all your problems on your parents and grandparents, Ezekiel 18 is for you. You can stop it. You can stand up and say, I will not worship the idol. I will not bow down to the golden calf. Maybe you, parents, maybe you've been raised by this kind of a violent, aggressive man. Maybe you've been raised by a sinner. You can stop it. It's beautiful. There's hope. We we can, in the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, stop those curses, stop the generations from spinning out of control. And here's evidence of it. Nadab and Abihu weren't the only two sons of Aaron. In 1 Chronicles 24, the chroniclers giving us a chronicle of everything that had happened for God's people. 1 Chronicles 24, verse 1, the divisions of the sons of Aaron were these, the sons of Nadab, or Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. We read about Ithamar back in in Exodus 38. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar became the priests. From the line of Ithamar came five high priests in the temple. From the line of Eleazar came the great high priest by the name of Jesus. There is hope. Back to Gen Z, 38% of Gen Z says that they eat a daily family dinner together, 38% compared to 46 of millennials who would say the same thing when they were growing up and 76% of baby boomers. 39% of Gen Z reports feeling lonely at least once a week. 
compared to 29% of Gen X, which is fascinating because we pretty much were alone, and 17% of baby boomers. But here's where it gets interesting. When it comes to weekly church attendance, and we just saw it, Gen Z is more likely to attend services than Gen X and millennials. And the younger half of Gen Z, those aged 13 to 17, eighth through 12th graders, 52% identify as Christians. But here's where it gets hard. Of that 52%, 50% said they don't believe the crucifixion to be a historical event. And only 33% say they believe Jesus rose from the dead. So they identify as Christians, but don't believe the core orthodox tenets of Christian faith. But over 60% of Gen Z say they're desperate to learn more about Jesus. When asked who they trust to teach them about Jesus, the top answer is the Bible. And the second answer is their family. Bezalels are ready to be taught. The Bezalels want to know the gospel. They want to know Jesus. They're lonely. And they would trust their family to teach them who Jesus is, even before they would trust a pastor to teach them. So do we want more Bezalels? I think we need to be more like her. We need to draw some lines in the sand and decide what we're going to teach our children and grandchildren. And the amount of time we've spent talking to them about politics and policies need to turn to now speaking to them about who Jesus is and who God is. Everything is not lost. If the tomb is empty, then God still brings dead things to life. And I know you feel overwhelmed, like you don't know how to talk about this. You didn't go to Bible college. You wouldn't go to seminary. So I'm gonna give you two things. One is this, you have the Holy Spirit in you. That's all you need. He will lead you into all conversation that you need to have. And secondly is this, you feel like you don't know? Well, then you come on a Wednesday night, you come on a Sunday morning, you learn what to speak to your kids. We've resourced you, you can do it. So then what do we do? Well, adults, I think first of all, we have to be repentant. We have to face the fact that Gen Z isn't the problem. We might be. Maybe the issue with this new generation is not their fault. Maybe it is ours. Maybe we've created idols in our homes. and Maybe we need to tear them down. Maybe the very things you get on to your children about are the very things that you do in your own home and that I do. We need to be repentant. Secondly, we need to be consistent. I think we all can have the Aaron moment on top of the mountain with Moses, right? But can you have the her moment when it comes to the golden calf? As Joshua is ending his life, he gives one final message to the people of Israel in Joshua 24. He tells them, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, in honesty and consistency. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. We gotta put away the false gods in our hearts and in our homes, on our calendars, 
in our checking accounts, we've gotta put them away. So you've gotta identify them first. Because the truth is for many of us, we haven't just allowed idols into our home, we've built the idols in our home. We've built the idolatry of sports. We've built the idolatry of success. We've built the idol in our home. We've built the idol of the phone in our home. You do understand your child does not need to have a phone that accesses the internet and social media. Sorry, guys. We gotta kill the idols. And for many of us, the reason why we won't have conversations with our boys about pornography is because we too are addicted to pornography. And we've gotta tear down the idol. So I would invite you on a Friday night to come to One Way. Have honest conversations. We gotta tear down the false gods. Verse 15, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. If it's not gonna be God, then you choose. Whether it's the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then Joshua says this, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we've got some decisions to make. We're gonna worship something. The Bible calls us to worship the one true God. And it is okay to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we're gonna serve the one true God. So fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, aunts, uncles, the question begs to be asked today, where are all the hers? Where are those of us who will stand not against society, not against the political party, but against the evil one? Where are those of us who will stand against the idolatry in our own hearts for the sake of our children and grandchildren? We want Bezalels who are gonna build dwelling places of God in the future. We better start tearing down some idols. And students, I wanna encourage you in this way. You don't have an excuse. You have all the resources in front of you. For many of you, your parents love you and they're doing the best that they can. You know what would help them is if you did the best that you could. There's a 13-year-old who's building a tabernacle based on descriptions from God. Don't tell me you can't do it. I believe you can. Parents, a lot of that rests on us. Grandparents, it rests on us. I wanna see Bezalels come out of our church. I wanna see him come out of our homes. I wanna see Ola transformed. I wanna see Ola High School and Ola Middle School and Ola Elementary transformed by the gospel because we've got little 12-year-old missionaries over there. It starts with us. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes? Brandon's gonna play and again, I don't wanna guilt or shame anyone. I've wrestled it enough. But I wanna walk us into the power of teaching our children and grandchildren the stories of who God is and not delegating that to a Christian school or to a youth pastor. 
And so maybe like me today, you're just convicted with the things that you've allowed in your home and the ways you're raising your children. And I wanna say to you, it's a good thing to be convicted. Let the spirit continue to move. If it's guilt, that's not from God, that's from the enemy. And so maybe what has to happen now is maybe mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, and uncle, maybe, maybe you need to spend some time in repentance. And maybe it begins at an altar, maybe it begins in your chair. Maybe it just begins with you crying out for the soul of your child. And I know there's some of you here today who are doing the best you can and your child continues to walk in sin. I don't, as much as it lies within you, And there's a God who's more powerful than anything you could say or do. So let's take the generation behind us to the Lord today. Maybe you need to find a son or a daughter and you need to repent to them and say, I'm sorry. I've become preoccupied with my own idols. I'm obsessed with my phone. I'm obsessed with the sin. And I've neglected you. If you forgive me, I wanna, I wanna walk this with you. I wanna be the one to answer your questions. Maybe your child is, um, has their own children now. So maybe it's a phone call and a conversation about, I, I wanna do this better with you than I had. I wanna walk with you now with your child. Maybe today, though, you've um, actually begun to worship false gods and you're seeking, searching to find the one true God, but you've been led astray. Maybe what's happening is you're seeing all those idols fail you over and over and over again. Well, there's a God who will never fail you, never forsake you, who sought you out by giving his life for you. And this Jesus, this Messiah, historically and literally died on a cross And he historically and literally rose from the dead, declaring that death no longer has a hold on you, sin no longer has a hold on you. And if you would believe that Jesus is who he says he is and you would give your life to that, then you would find salvation for your weary, broken soul. But I'm gonna pray. If you need to come to the altar and pray, you can, I would encourage you to Just plead with the Lord. What do you want? I want my kids to know Jesus. That's what I want. I want them to know peace that passes understanding. I want them to find contentment in him so they don't seek it in the world or in a relationship. I want them to have wisdom and discernment from on high to know the difference between good and evil and the courage to choose what is good. That's what I want. God, we love you. And it doesn't take much for us to know that we're struggling when it comes to this. So for the people in the room today who are walking in the despair of guilt and shame, God, rescue them from it in the moment now. Pull them out of it. Pull them out of hopelessness and despair. Give them the eyes to see that you are still a God who's in control and you're still working. As long as there's breath in their lungs, there's hope in the future. God, for those of us who are wrestling with the conviction of building idols 
for generations behind us to worship God, would you give us the courage to tear them down, to call them what they are, to stop making excuses, to stop um, justifying, stop being like Aaron and saying, no, no, we're worshiping you and we're still doing this thing. God, remind us of her. And though we may never see it, would you raise up a generation of Bezalels who are building the tabernacle, the dwelling place of the Most High, with painstaking passion and attention to detail, fully obedient disciples of you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.